Will you please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to read just one verse. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. O God, our Father, Abba, Father, I pray that the momentous, glorious, happy truth of this promise will find a place in each heart here this morning. By your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. There is an old spiritual, birthed in this case not so much in the haunting miseries of slavery and the unspeakable sorrows of a shackled life under a white man's lash, but birthed instead in hearts haunted by another slavery, another kind of lash, the slavery and the lash of sin. The specific spiritual feels and finds its way into our hearts with these words from a sin and sorrow afflicted soul. There is a balm in Gilead to to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Sometimes I feel discouraged and think my work's in vain, but then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. There is a balm in Gilead. That phrase is taken from Jeremiah's tear-drenched prophecy in Jeremiah 8, where the people of God are in deep affliction. They have been exiled, lost, bereaved, burdened, seared with grief to the very deepest parts of their being. And Jeremiah cries out in in that chapter, My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. For the wound of my people, my heart is wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? 
There, there are times in our lives, in our pilgrimage here on earth, in which the prophet's words might well become our own. Is there no balm in Gilead, in our place of sorrow, in our tears? Is there no healing ointment? Is there, is there no soothing, restoring salve for our sin and sorrow-sick souls? Dear ones, there is balm in Gilead. But we need grace to see it, and we need grace to apply it, and we need grace to feel it in our hearts. More than 30 years ago, right about this time of the year, as Galen and I were expecting the near arrival of one of our children, we arrived at church one Sunday only to learn that a young family had just given birth to a precious baby with Down syndrome. And as our church felt the mingled sadness and joy of that precious little life, our pastor stood up and he applied balm to our spirits. He opened the word to Romans 8 and verse 28. Then he poured the oil of this promise into our needy hearts and he provided a salve for our grief that has remained effective and healing to this very day. Little did Galen and I know that shortly thereafter we would need that same balm ourselves. When our little one entered the world, that dear child was born with afflictions and sorrows that have remained and increased to this very hour. We needed balm. We still do. As do we all. I have have one desperate prayer this morning. That somehow God would apply the balm of His grace to your hearts and mine. That somehow the, the security and the safety of chapter 8 of Romans and verses 14 through 17 would would come to us, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received, brothers, sisters, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. May may the Spirit bear witness with our spirit today that we are God's children. And may the message of our Heavenly Father be to us one of comfort as we look at verse 28. One of the great tragedies in recent time is the tragedy that Romans 8 and verse 28 has been so often glibly quoted and hastily quoted and partially quoted and misquoted and misapplied, that it has been reduced to the ash heap of cliché. For many, it just comes out now something like, well, it's all going to work out for good. This morning, I want to rescue this promise from the ash heap. And I want us to see it and sense it for what it is. And by God's grace, I want it to become something that anchors our hearts to the rock of God and His promises. I, may it be that this verse will become something like the strong and almighty arms of God that 
carry us and carry us safely all the way home to heaven. And in order to make sure that this verse lands in our hearts and on our spirits in a way that is solid and sure and lasting, can I, can I break it down for you into four parts? I want us to see the context of this promise then the certainty of the promise, and then the meaning of the promise, and then the recipients of the promise. And I hope that in doing this, this will be balm in Gilead for each one of us. So the context of this promise. This promise doesn't just come to us on its own. It's set in the context of all of Romans chapter 8, particularly beginning in verse 18. For I consider, Paul writes, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The the context of this promise is this. Paul speaks of a groaning world full of believing people who are themselves groaning people. This is a promise to hurting believers. This is a promise to groaning Christians. Friends, that says two things to us. We live in a groan-producing world. We live in a world that produces sorrow. It does no good to deny it. It does no good to make believe. It does no good to just think in some kind of fantasy world. No, this world is broken. This world is groaning. All of creation is groaning. And it's a wonderful world. Yes, the world proclaims the glory of the Lord. It declares the majesty of God. But it is also a world that is full of sorrow. It is cursed. And to be sure, the risen Lord is redeeming this world. And to be sure, He will keep on redeeming it until every last sorrow is gone, every last tear is wiped. But it has a long way to go. It is still massively broken. This passage teaches us that we live in a groaning world. It also teaches us, and please hear this, that it is okay for us to grieve the grief. It is okay for us to groan. Paul says that we Christians groan. And notice he includes himself in that word we. And in fact, the language of the text is very emphatic where he says we ourselves who have the Spirit, we ourselves, who have the Spirit, groan within ourselves. Even though we have the Spirit, we groan. Paul says, I groan, I lament, I mourn, I grieve. I don't pretend. I don't fake 
everything is not all right. And it can easily be argued that we as Christians feel this grief more than anyone. Because we know the way the world was meant to be. And we know the way that the world can be better. We know what God intended. Perhaps of all, we are most sad. It may seem strange. Paul saying to us that he groaned when he knew verse 28 was true. Paul, if everything's working out for good, why are you groaning? If God is in control, if God is in charge, why are you groaning? Why the mourning? Why the lament? There's a great and vital lesson for us here, folks. The fact that we know that in the end everything is going to turn out all right does not mean that we do not grieve right now because everything is not all right. Everything is not all right. And it's worth crying about. It is worth weeping over. Jesus himself models this for us in the text that Oren read earlier. When his friend, his beloved friend Lazarus died, Jesus, John tells us in John 11, Jesus was greatly troubled in his spirit and he wept. The words greatly troubled speak of a highly agitated state of emotion. He, his heart was a cauldron of distress and grief and pain, of agony even bordering on anger. Jesus, Jesus was angry. He was outraged, not with the people, but I think with the one who causes this pain. Just a couple of chapters earlier, he says of the devil, he is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And I think in that moment in, in Lazarus's death, Jesus is just overwhelmed by the horror and the wrongness of it all. And he weeps. But you say, well, why did he weep? He knew what he was going to do. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus. He tells the people earlier, God is going to be glorified in this. He tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I have the power of life in my own hands, in my own existence, in my own being. If, if Jesus knew all of this and knew what he was going to do, why did he weep? He wept because... In that very moment, he decided to not transcend the grief, but to enter the grief. We can sometimes be tempted with the things we know, with the reality that it all works out for good, to try to transcend the grief, rather than to Enter it. And in this moment, Jesus postponed the words and the remedy and the theology and even the experience of resurrection long enough to feel what had happened 
and to share the moment. The triumphant victory of what was about to happen, resurrection, did not minimize the appalling tragedy of what had just happened. Death. And and by choosing tears, Jesus shows us, dear ones, Jesus shows us that when something sad happens, we are permitted to be sad. We are allowed, even encouraged, to cry. Severed relationships and broken marriages and shattered dreams and fractured families and struggling children and disappointed hopes and diseased and dying loved ones, all of these are real sorrows and valid griefs. Who created tear ducts? The obvious answer gives you all the permission you need to use them. Let us realize blessed are those who mourn. Comfort very often starts with crying. And so when the tears start to flow, let them flow. If they turn into sobs, sob freely. If your heart wails, wail as loud as you choose. For things are not as they ought to be. Paul says we groan. We groan. That's the context for the promise. The certainty of the promise. Verse 28 begins with what words? And we know. I'm here to tell you this morning, folks, that maybes and hope fors and wishful thinking will not cut it in the deepest, darkest hours of our lives. We need knowledge. We need certainties. We need absolute realities. We need to know. We need to know that we know that we know what is truth. There is a certainty to this. Paul, in the midst of his grief and groaning, says, we know. We know. A little earlier in verse 26, he says, there's one thing we don't know. We don't know how to pray as we ought. We are so confused. We are so mixed up by the circumstances of life. We don't have a clue as to what God is doing and why God is doing so doing it. So we, we go to pray. We don't even know what to say. We don't even know how to express it. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what God is doing. But we do know this. We do know this. What do we know? Well, that's the meaning of the promise. Here's what this promise, all things work together for good. Here's what the promise means. There there is not a moment, there is not an event or a circumstance or a trial or a grief or a tear or a sob or a throbbing ache of the heart or a long dark night of the soul There is not one of them that is pointless or arbitrary or random or beyond the sovereign control and love of God. And even deeper what this promise means is this. Every single one of these, 
Every moment, every event, every circumstance, every trial, every grief, every tear, every sob, every last throbbing ache of the heart and long dark night of the soul is ordained and ordered, is ruled and overruled, is worked and then reworked and then worked together by the everlasting arm of our God for our good. All of it. Notice what he says. All things work together for good. Paul, what kind of all things are you talking about? What's the the sufferings of verse 18 that he's talked about? It's the groanings of the later verses. It's, It's the sufferings that he mentions in verse 35. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. And in verse 38, he talks about death. and He talks about demons uh, as well. And he says, all of these things, all of these things work out for good, are being worked together for good. That's what this promise means. Our God is taking each and every one and just using them together in an interwoven way, causing all of them to converge in a single direction toward a single aim. All of the divergent things, all of the hard things, all of the difficult things, the God who is for us, the God who is Abba Father, the God, God who works all things together, is, is taking everything that happens to us and everything that happens in us and everything that happens against us and everything that happens around us and everything that happens by us, even if it's good or bad, pure or sinful, pleasant or painful, heavenly or hellish, he's taken all of it, making it synthesized and harmonized and come together for good. By the providential, the sovereign, the good hand of God. There was a mighty synergy, a mighty convergence of all of life's events as they merge into a river of divine providence and power. And they flow with irresistible and unstoppable purpose toward our God and Father's merciful, kind, and gracious end in each one of our lives. And what is that end? What does he say? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For good. For the benefit of, for the advantage of, for the use and blessing of the children of God. That does not mean that all things are good. They are not all good. Death is not good. Disease is not good. Killer tornadoes are not good. Divorce and estrangement and mental illness and poverty and ignorance are not good. But in the words of Joseph of ancient times, What the devil and demons and death mean for evil, God means for good. What's what's the good? Well, you see part of it in verse 29. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What's the good that God is up to in our afflictions, in our sorrows, in our griefs? It is that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. It is so that we would become more and more like Jesus. It is so that these things can be used in the hands of God to humble us, to, to... to strengthen our faith, to make us steadfast, to to give us more hope, to to wean our hearts off of the world and onto Christ, to take our minds and our thoughts away from things here below and set them on things that are above. He does these things so that we will be more like Jesus. And we will. No one, no man or woman of faith has ever gone through a trial who hasn't come through on the other end of it having gone deeper with God, having become stronger in faith, even if that other end is death itself and they wake up in glory. This is the good, but it's not the only good. The fact is that there is, there is an even sweeter and better good if it's possible to be sweeter and better than like Jesus. Um, it's being with Jesus. And it's, and it's sharing in the glory of Christ. Notice verse 18, I consider that sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revel- revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There is a glory that awaits us. And all that's happening in our lives here and now is conforming us to the image of Christ, but also preparing us for that glory. And all that's happening, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God somehow is using all of this in such a way in our lives here and now that we are becoming more conformed to Christ And then somehow at the end of it all, when we see Christ, all of this is going to magnify and intensify the glory that we experience, the joy that we experience. And this is so sure, so certain, that we read in verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice the tense, it's past tense. It is so sure that we are going to be glorified that Paul speaks of it as already done. This is so certain what God is up to in our lives through the afflictions. It is so certain that he says, it's already yours. It's already yours. God causes all things to work together for good. For good. For good. For good. Now who are the recipients of this promise? The text gives us two answers. 
First, the promise that all things work together for good is for those who love God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. There is both a warning and an invitation here. If you do not love God, if God bores you, if you are indifferent and hostile and angry and hateful and rejecting of God, this promise isn't for you. You can't claim it. Not until you bend your heart to the God who gives it. Not until you come to a place of repentance from your sin and trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord. Believing that when he died, he died for your sins. When he rose, he rose for your victory. As he reigns today, he reigns to be your King and your Lord. It's only as you believe that and out of that faith, Love for God emerges and surfaces. It is only then that you can claim this promise. So if you are here this morning do not, and do not love God, the God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I invite you to Him. I invite you to Him because He's a glorious Father and He will receive you just like that. Just like that. For those of us who already do love God by the mercy of God, this promise is for us. But it gets better. Notice, the promise that all things work together for good is for those, not just those who love God, but even better, in my view, even better, for those who are called according to His purpose. This promise is for those who are called by God. That is not just referring to some kind of general invitation to come to Christ. It is talking about a powerful, inward, regenerating, drawing of your heart to a place of faith. Everyone in this room can remember the day when they were running away from God. We can all remember the day when our hearts were hardened to God. We didn't want to hear His voice. But then the day came when we heard His voice. And it wasn't because we had changed ourselves, but He changed us. And He drew us to Himself. He called us to Himself. Like, like a dad with a, a little two-year-old. And the, dad's, or the, the little kiddo is running around the room and the dad wants to hold the child. And so what does the dad do? He, he, he says... Come here. Come on. Reaches out his hands. Slowly the child looks and a little, little bit of an appeal there. The kid was going his own way, but suddenly he's turned around. He sees his dad. Dad woos with voice. Come on, little one. Come on, son. Come on, daughter. Child gets closer. Dad reaches out his hands, holds the hands of the child, draws the child in calling the child to himself. This has happened to every one of us by a supernatural, almighty, powerful work of God the Holy Spirit in our lives. We are the called. Oh, what a great, great blessing. What a great, great joy to know that I am his not because somehow I sought him 
but I am his because for some reason he sought me. And he called me. Now notice it. He called us according to his purpose. I say that is better than for those who love God. Why? Well, that it is for those who love God is encouraging because I think I love God, at least some. Sometimes when I'm not stuck on myself and my sin. But that it is also for those who are called according to his purpose is way more than encouraging. It is rock-solid securing. This is absolute confidence. You and I, children of God, we are called according to his purpose. That means that as Christians, we are his by his sovereign decree and will. We are called according to his purpose, not according to our fickle will, not according to our uncertain plans, our fallible efforts and workings, but according to his plans and his purposes and his decrees, which always stand, which always endure, which never fail, according to his purpose, we are called. So, The one who has called us according to his sovereign grace and purpose. The purpose of him who in the words of Ephesians 1 works all things after the counsel of his own will. The purpose of him whose counsel stands forever and the plans of his heart stand to all generations. Psalm 33, 11. The purpose of the God who is in the heavens and does all that pleases him. Psalm 115. The purpose of him who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Isaiah 40. The purpose of him who can do all things without ever having any of his purposes be thwarted. Job 42. The purpose of him of whom it is said, whatever the Lord pleases, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps, Psalm 135. This is the purpose of him who says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned it, so it will be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. Isaiah 14. This is the purpose of him of whom it is said by the King Nebuchadnezzar, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth and no one can stay his hand. This is the purpose of the one who says in Isaiah 46, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning And from ancient times, the things not yet done, saying, 
my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Who receives this promise? Those who have been called. Called by a sovereign God who accomplishes all his purposes. So our calling is secure. My love for God, eh, God's love for me, secure. My faithfulness to God, fickle. God's faithfulness to me, firm. My plans and my purposes, they vanish. God's plans and God's purposes never fail. Never fail. No wonder Paul finishes Romans 8 the way he does. Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? What's the answer? No one. Why? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? What's the answer? No one. Why? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's the answer? No one. Nothing. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's why we groan. That's why we groan. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That means not only do we survive them all, but God actually turns all of those things around to serve us. We are more than conquerors. They don't just die, they serve us. They are bound to do God's will in our life. All things work together for good. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure. Paul, how can you be so sure? Because God is God. And if God is for us, who can be against us? God is on the throne and his purposes never fail. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So there is a balm in Gilead. Oh, Lord, give us grace. 
to believe it, to apply it, and to feel it. Be with this church family, O Lord, today and in the days to come. Apply the balm to us. Be with Karen, Alana, Ross. Apply the balm in tender, gentle ways to their hearts. So whatever might tempt them to fear or despair might be banished. That their tears might heal. That in the middle of the tears, somewhere down deep in their spirit, they can hear the Father's voice. Father, theirs is a grief that none of us can touch. But there is a balm in Gilead. And you are the great physician, the great healer of our sin-sick and sorrow-burdened souls. Thank you, Lord, for meeting with us. Amen. Amen. You guys can stay 